If you're headed to the nursery or kids club, you are now dismissed. Otherwise, grab a Bible and open it to James chapter 2. I want to start this morning by reading from an important book. The 1961 classic, Sneetches, by Dr. Seuss. Now the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon theirs. Those stars were so big, they were really so small, you might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. I'm not reading the whole thing. But because they had stars, all the star-bellied Sneetches would brag, we're the best kind of Sneetch on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We have nothing to do with a plain-bellied sort. And and whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right past them without even talking. When the star-bellied children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You could play if your bellies had stars, but the plain-bellied children had none upon theirs. When the star-bellied Sneetches had frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain-bellied Sneetches. They left them out cold in the dark on the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near, and that's how they treated them year upon year. Friends, the Sneetches had a problem. The Sneetches saw with the eyes of the world. They saw with eyes that are selfish, eyes that are self-focused, eyes that look to spend people like they're a currency, eyes that desire to categorize and rank, not trying to give away the whole book. But the Sneetches looked around and judged one another, like you and me. They judged one another. If you're like me, That's good. I like that. That's affirming. If you're not like me, that's a problem. And it quickly becomes you're not good enough for me. That's what sin does. Sin in us starts to show division. It starts to show partiality. It starts to show favoritism. You might even call it prejudiced. The idea that we would start ranking one another. The star-bellied sneeches wanted nothing to do with the plain-bellied sneeches because they had no stars. They wouldn't talk to them. They wouldn't eat with them. They completely ignored them. All because some had stars and some did not. Now, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but Dr. Seuss, writing in 1961, writes an allegory about American culture and about what's going on in our country in regards to racial and ethnic equality. And it's actually an incredible social commentary that gets to the idea that we start categorizing one another and ranking ourselves. A commentary that was just as true in 1961 as it is now. A commentary that was just as true now as it was in the first century Israel. Because this morning as we open up the second chapter of the book of James, James is not talking about sneeches. He's talking about the church. Believers in Jesus Christ gathered together. And rather than talking about how we are united in Christ, you see believers taking on the eyes of the world, letting their preferences take over and categorizing people, and it shouldn't be. This morning as we walk into James 2, we're going to see what the gospel has to say about that. How the gospel reveals our problem and how the gospel is 
our solution. And so as we head there this morning, let's take time to pray about our time in God's Word. That we would be open to hear from Him. That we'd be open to having our sin exposed by Him. That we'd be open to have the gospel poured in and that we'd be open to being transformed. Let's go to Him and pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for Your Word that You have given to us that we might see You, we might understand You, and that You might use Your Word, Father, to build your people. Father, we ask in this time that you would free us from distractions. Satan wants nothing more than to put all kinds of thoughts and grocery lists and things to do and laundry on our mind. Father, would you in these moments grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him that our hearts might be enlightened according to what Paul prays. That we might see the fullness of the salvation that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We might see the gospel that you have given to us to save our souls. We might love one another through that same gospel that you have given us because you loved us first. Father, we ask that you would be at work to do all these things. Through the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Beloved, we've called our series in the book of James, Portraits of Maturity. Because as we've seen so far, we're three weeks in and we're going to keep seeing James is writing to show us spiritual maturity. He's writing as if to say, if you're following Jesus Christ, this is what walking with Jesus should look like. Oh, you might not be there yet, but this is where you're headed. This is what maturity looks like. James describes it for us. He uses these different tools to show us what these pictures look like. If you want to take a macro picture of James, you pick this up. There are 108 verses in the book of James, 54 of them, for those of you who aren't awesome at math, that's one and two, are imperatives. Which means James is going to show us practically what it looks like to live out our faith in Jesus. Kind of like it's practical instructions. James walking beside you going, Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't talk that way. You know, Jesus would, Jesus would have you do it this way. Jesus would have you do it this way. He's walking us through in a practical manner to show us what maturity looks like. There was a time in my life I sat with my kids and said, you know, Big boys sit on the toilet. You know, big boys use forks. You know, you grow up. That's what James is doing for us in this book. He's giving us these measures, these pictures, so that we would see what maturity looks like. And that we would be reminded that we're called to mature. Not that we'd be condemned. Oh, beloved, we need to be reminded over and over and over again, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when God calls you up, you feel condemned by that. That's not a work of the Spirit. That's Satan. For Hebrews 10, 14 would testify to us about the work of Jesus. For by a single offering, pointing to the death and the resurrection of Christ, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
blood by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You've been justified, meaning you've been declared righteous before a holy God. And now he's at work sanctifying you. He's transforming you so that what you've been legally declared to be, you might start to look like. This isn't legalism. This isn't moralism. This is biblical transformation that we would be called up to be mature. Beloved, it's so fitting that James begins his epistle by identifying himself as a servant. I said the first week, it was catchy, I'm going to keep on it. This book is a servant of God exhorting servants of God to serve God. It's a big picture of this whole book. I think it's key because it helps us to understand that according to James, and by the way, the rest of the New Testament writers, to follow Jesus is to subordinate your entire life to him. It's to recognize that Jesus is in charge of absolutely every part of your life. He's got to say and do every single part of your life. Which is to say we recognize that verbally when we call him Lord. We profess you're the master. You're in charge. We practically live that out then by obeying him. So James gives us this foundation to understand that we are servants, that we submit ourselves to them. And as he continues on in his writing, he brings us in chapter 1 to call us to count it joy when you endure trials. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And he's going to use trials and challenges to mold and shape us. So we submit ourselves to that. We recognize he has a purpose. God, I have no idea why you'd put me through this, but I just trust you with it. And I know how hard that is. That's not an easy thing, but that step of, Lord, I recognize you're in this. I trust you is submitting to his lordship. And then last week, James shows us this pathway to enduring those trials, the pathway to growing up. It's not a hard path, but he says this, read your Bible. We see that in chapter 1, verse 21, if it's open. Receive with meekness the implanted word, that we would be a people of the book. You can't expect to grow up and mature without reading your Bible, but that's not it. Verse 22 would exhort us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So that we would see that as believers, we don't just read our Bibles to move our bookmark along. We don't just want to check mark that box on our to-do list of the day or fulfill that little part of our app so that we can earn the next little section we get to listen to tomorrow. We read so that we might heed, so that we might be reminded of who we are. James has built this foundation of the life of maturity for us. And he's going to build on that. That brings us to chapter 2, where we'll land this morning, starting in verse 1. My brothers, quick pause, 
My brothers could rightly be translated my brothers and sisters. We need a, a belief and understanding that in most ancient languages, masculine contexts were, were inclusive, that male and female could be read into a lot of masculine terms. It's just the reality of the words. My brothers, he's not just talking to the men, he's like all of us. That's why some of you who went to college and joined sororities, they weren't sororities, they were fraternities, and you weren't all offended then because you got it. My brothers, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Beloved, the first thing we need to see is the gospel. My brothers, my brothers and sisters, James is writing to his spiritual family. We have to keep coming back to this because it grounds us in the gospel lest we see this as a moralistic book. My brothers, we need to be reminded that James encountered the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, that James believed in him, and it radically transformed his life from somebody who denied Jesus was the Savior to someone who lived and practiced that Jesus was the Savior. And now he writes to you in the same regard as a brother. The idea that you believe this too, we're in this together, we're a family. But there's more. When he gives his exhortation, my beloved, my brothers, show no partiality. He doesn't add so that you might prove yourself worthy of Jesus. He doesn't add so that you might earn 12 Jesus points. He doesn't add so that you might get three spiritual check marks or whatever it is you try to deem your spiritual value or worth on. James writes, and look at it, show no partiality as you Hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And friends, look at me for a moment. This is a gospel moment that we need to heed, we need to hold on to. Because what James is trying to help you lean into here is that you and I sin. And our sin is rebellion against a holy God. Our sin separates us from God. And our sin has purchased for us, quite literally, a one-way ticket to hell. And the only thing that could change our final destination is Jesus Christ. Our faith is based entirely, and please get your amens ready, our faith is based entirely on believing that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient for our salvation. Thank you. That we would understand that his blood is the full and the complete payment for all of our sin. That his blood has purchased our salvation. That we might be adopted into the family of God. That we might be deemed a heir of all eternity. Which is to say, and I need you to really think on this for a moment. That the gospel requires you to recognize that you brought nothing to the equation but sin. 
That's orthodox Christian belief. In salvation, you brought nothing but sin. That's all you brought. Jesus does all the work. So just to be clear, James is pointing us to the gospel. I think to make sure that this isn't a moral lesson, but I think there's something far more than that here. I think there's a, a bigger point James is trying to hone in on here. Because I think when we understand the fullness, the completeness, the complexities of the gospel, we understand it's not based on our merits. Then we would understand that to be rooted in the gospel makes partiality an impossibility. Consider this. If you have no merit before God the Father, You cannot look at somebody else and assess their merit. It's foolishness. It's epically prideful. It's to raise your economy of value and worth over God's economy and value and worth. It's to look at the Lord and to declare that you are smarter and you know more than Him. It's to deny the gospel. Which is to say, When James writes, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. Jesus is enough. You didn't have to do anything to earn salvation. The idea that you would hold no partiality would logically follow. It's the parable of the debt. He's forgiven much. The guy's forgiven tons. I should have looked it up. Don't remember the reference. guy... He's forgiven like billions of dollars and then wants to collect little things from other people who owe him money. And God's like, no. That's partiality, right? Like when you understand God has given you everything. You've been given everything in Jesus Christ. Nobody can owe you anything. James is pointing us to the gospel. He's pointing us to the complete work of Jesus. So that we might be able to contrast that from the world. Because what the world would testify to you, what a star-bellied snitch would testify to you, is that the world is built upon how you might benefit from a person. How they might push you forward. And they might push you forward Financially, they might push you forward socially. They might push you forward relationally. But we look at people with this transactional perspective. I want to gain from you. How can you help me? The gospel's going, no. Like I've helped you completely. I've given you everything. You lack nothing. Such that in Jesus Christ, we would be called to give freely and generously. We might pour ourselves out like a drink offering because we're not the source of any of it. So if you're not sure what this kind of partiality might look like, you want a clearer picture, you're not sure you could ever be guilty of something such as this, James is going to illustrate it for us. Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, 
Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? A couple of quick observations to James's illustration. First, people often say things like the modern church looks nothing like the first century church. My first observation would be to say, look at James's illustration and consider that it sure looks like a church gathered in a building with an usher helping people find seats. Correct? I mean, it, it is there. You, you'd be blind to miss that part of his illustration. Then more to the point of the passage. This is what James is illustrating. You're the usher. Two people walk in. One clearly wealthy. The gold ring suggests he's probably an upper-class Roman citizen. One who is clearly poor. James is setting up the distinction. One whose friendship might bring some benefit to you. One whose relationship might help or further the church. Another who offers you nothing. How are you going to handle that moment? That's the challenge. So here's the question. Do you see both of them as being made in the image of God? Do you see them both as your brother and sister in Jesus Christ? Do you see them both through the eyes of the gospel? Or is it possible that we've been so influenced by the world but that we can't help but make distinctions from a worldly perspective? And I think we all ought to be at least honest enough to go, I do that sometimes. Right? I need more than three yups. We all do that. We all categorize. We rank people. We create our own little social orders. And we need to be mindful of the fact that money isn't the only grounds that we might show favoritism on. According to Ephesians 2, race was an issue in the early church. How you treat and accept outsiders, how you react to Gentiles, people who were not like you, seemed to be an issue in the local church. In Acts 15, we see that. Because with the reality of it, what we find at the very heart of it is that sin has seeped deep into our hearts. And without even realizing it, we've subjected ourselves to these worldly patterns of thinking. And James wants to lean in on us and say, that's not living the gospel. That's not putting a gospel lens. That's not spiritual maturity. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brother, says God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We said over and over again, James is actually giving a sermon on the Sermon of the Mount. James points back here to many of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. You study the Sermon on the Mount. You quickly gather that God's economy is not our economy. God sees the world so radically different than we do. So what do we do about that? Because at the heart level, this is a trial. This is a temptation. This is a challenge. 
For you're the usher to people who are walking up the walkway. You have a temptation in your soul that you've got to sort that out. And beloved, we would say quickly, it's a gospel moment. It's a chance for the gospel to inform you. It's a chance for the gospel to grow you up. It's a chance for the gospel to change you. To mature you. James is going to complete this section with three exhortations that help push us forward, that ought to inform how we walk in these situations. Here's this first exhortation, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James points to what's called the royal law. If you remember in Matthew 22, a lawyer asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? I mean, if I'm going to obey you, if I'm going to follow you, what's like the one thing I really got to get right? If you remember, Jesus answers him. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He asks for one, Jesus gives him two. The two seem to be highly connected. Jesus says, love God, love people. Now we could spend a long time digging into what is a neighbor, and you would quickly figure out a neighbor is somebody who's not like you, right? Somebody who's very different than you. Otherwise, they'd be a brother or sister. He's not trying to give you a distinction. He's giving you a broad category. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus seems to connect this idea that how you love strangers is indicative of how much you love God. As if you stink at loving people, you stink at showing people grace and mercy and the gospel, it may well be you're not experiencing it. For your ability to really experience God's love and mercy and grace ought to slow, slowly flow through you and transform you such that what you receive from God the Father, you show your neighbors. If you're to love your neighbors yourself, I mean, that's a ridiculously high calling. That's to go outside and to recognize, I need to shovel my snow. My neighbor needs to shovel his too. Maybe loving is helping him. Maybe loving him is putting his needs before mine. Francis Schaeffer called this the final apologetic. Asserting that it definitively proves the faith we hold. Meaning, if you want to claim that you believe the gospel... If you want to claim that Jesus has transformed your life, the way to test that is to watch how you love others. Francis Schaeffer asserts 
That's the final apologetic. That's the final testimony. That's the litmus test on how far into Jesus are you? Is Jesus just about saving your soul? It's like fire insurance. I don't really want to change. I just kind of want to check a box, a category. I want to feel better about myself. Or you into following Jesus. I'm going to submit my whole life to you. I'm going to let you testify to me that I'm supposed to love these people even when it's ridiculously hard. Even when I can't do it. Even when I'm falling on my face struggling. Am I going to try? Well, this is where we see the gospel in this passage, correct? Can any of us do that? Raise your hand if you can do that this week. Yep, none of us. Thanks for not raising your hand and being honest. This is the gospel. We could never, will never, can't try to be good enough. And yet because he's loved us, because he's shown us mercy and grace, we're going to try to live that out. We're going to live out the gospel. We'll come back to that. It's going to be our takeaway. We'll finish in 1 John 4 here in a minute, but let's look at his final exhortations. He has two more. Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. What James is asserting for us is that you may think and decide that partiality is not that big a deal. You may decide judging other people and determining their worth is not that big of a deal. You may decide that your racism your classism, your genderism, your ageism, your socialism, whatever the ism you want to claim, however you want to categorize people and feel good about yourself, you may decide that's not a big deal. James wants to make it clear. It's a big deal. It is one of the great lies of Satan to convince you and me to be permissive with our sin. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with the big ones. Those are little ones. They're not that big a deal. James wants to make it clear this is a big deal. This thing by itself would separate you from a holy God. It matters. It's sin. And so he gives us his final exhortation, his final portrait of maturity, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is not is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is trying to articulate for you and for me is that we would speak and act according to the gospel. To recognize that we weren't saved because we were worthy. We're saved because He is worthy. So we don't love other people because they are worthy. We love other people because He is worthy. 
we start to embrace this reality that the only thing I could stand on is Jesus Christ. That's it. And because of that, I have more than enough to try to attempt to love people. That's why we're going to finish in 1 John 4. Because if James is going to call us not to show partiality, not to show judgment, not to categorize people, how do we do that? John's going to help us. 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. It's not from you. doesn't source with you. doesn't start with you. He doesn't say dig deep, call it, white knuckle it. Ask him. Love is from God. God, I, I need love. I need to love this person. I need to love these people. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Testifies to the reality of my salvation. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Testifies. You stink at loving people. It may well be because you don't know love. You don't know God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. He's pointing us to Jesus. In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God showed us this great love that Jesus was willing to sacrifice Himself, die on a cross in your place, take all of your sin so that you would be empowered, you would be enabled to live through Him. Verse 10, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You know, Paul prays in Ephesians that we collectively as a body would come to know that we are loved immensely. And that's the difference maker in this. That's the difference between you standing in a room and trying to find your value as you interact with other people versus you standing in a room recognizing the overwhelming way in which God the Father has loved you such that you could give freely. And beloved, can I just tell you, if you don't believe that, we'll take you back to James 1 and read and obey. Because if you remember James 1, you read and obey so that you can look in the mirror and remember what you look like. So that you can look at yourself in the mirror and remember what you look like. So you can look in the mirror and remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember that Jesus Christ has established you. He's rooted you. He's built you. He's put you together so you can remember what you look like. So that you could walk away with a full picture of who you are in Jesus Christ, that as you interact with different people, it's Christ that's on display because you know who you are. You've read and obeyed your Bible. 
You don't know this natively. You're going to struggle with this natively. We have all kinds of sins we've got to put away, and we're not going to do it on our own strength and power. We're going to do it because we remember who we are. We remember the fullness of what Jesus did for us. And we remember that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Beloved, we need to be reminded to be fueled by the gospel. The gospel that saved us is the gospel we love other people with. So James gives us this picture of maturity where we freely love and don't hold partiality. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, as we continue to move through this book, we are going to find increasingly these tension-filled moments where James wants to point out sin. He wants to point out that we fall short. Father, in those moments, we're going to be so tempted to believe Satan and start to feel overwhelmed and guilty and insignificant. We're going to start to feel this weight and this burden like we are not good enough. Father, would you give us the recognition to hold on to that that is Satan condemning us, not your spirit. For there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, Father, you've not called us to live our life as a four-year-old spiritually. You've called us to mature, to grow up. That as you expose sin in our lives, that just like Neosporin in a band-aid, we'd apply the gospel to it. That we could turn away from our sin and we could turn to Christ. So, Father, may it be this morning that we would be built up in the gospel, reminded of the fullness of everything Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, and we could live out that identity as fully forgiven people, so loved by you, that we're able to live in a way that we can freely dispense your mercy and your grace that we could love our neighbors so well that they would see Christ in us. And we could love our family so well that they would see Christ in us. We could love each other so well. Father, would you be at work in us, growing us up to that kind of maturity? And would you give us the peace and the patience and the grace to know that not everybody is there that I'm not there, that as we struggle with one another, we continue to show each other the gospel. Father, grow us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.